0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, Accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking as a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, Knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
0: All right. Church, shall we pray together and ask God for his help as we open up his word? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you speak so clearly to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for these really poignant verses from Paul towards the end of this letter. Lord, we pray as we read it, you would speak clearly to us through it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be powerfully at work. Take these words and plant them deep in our hearts. We pray that they might grow and and bring forth life in us and through us. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Uh, Well, church, it's such a a pleasure to be with you again, uh, opening up this cracking passage. We're going to play a game to start. You want to play a game? Let's let's play a game. All right, what's going to happen? It's your classic who said it game. You're going to see some pictures on the screen and some statements. Now, don't be fooled. The statements beside each picture are not actually in the right order. The game is that you've got to match the sayer with the saying. All right, are you with me? Okay. Let's get a bit of energy. Are you with me? All right. Here we go. So first statement, for those wondering, I will pay over uh, 11 billion in taxes this year. Who do you think that is? Which of our three friends? It is indeed Elon Musk. Humble brag to get us started. Anyone else in that tax bracket? No. Didn't think so. All right. Next statement. Nobody knows more about taxes than me, maybe in the history of the world. That's going to be Trump. It is indeed Donald Trump. Yes, thank you for those. There's many. There are websites that list Donald Trump's big boasts. All right, here comes the last one. Then, obviously, my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. <laughs> Can you imagine having to suffer with that? Oh, who is it? Uh, yeah. It's Kanye. Yeah, it is. At three three people, three big boasts, three well-known celebrities in our world. Uh, all blokes, interestingly. It's kind of hard to get women making big, brash statements. don't know if there's anything in that, but that's what we've got today. It's fun, kind of poking fun at these guys with their big boasts and then big noting themselves. But they exist, don't they, in a, a culture that celebrates success and, and celebrity. We, we look up To these wealthy influential billionaires don't we even with them boasting like this even in their arrogance we still kind of have them up there as people uh, we listen to people we sometimes might even aspire to be like it's just the way of the world to continue to, to boast and big note yourselves and that's a world we all live in if we're honest with ourselves right we exist in that world too and so we will share stories of our successes. We, we share the best of ourselves on social media generally, don't we? We'll tell stories of our wins in life. As Guy pointed out last week, we'll even boast or make sure you know about the things that are hard in our lives. We'll send out little kind of virtue signals when life is tough on how little we're paid or how hard we work or how much we're serving at church just to earn some of those sweet Christian kudos, right? Right? We live in a a world that celebrates, enjoys, encourages, boasting in our strengths and in our virtues. And look, that's the way of the Apostle Paul's world too. Here's a a picture of Caesar Augustus. Here he is. Uh, Caesar Augustus lived just before Paul. He celebrated his own achievements. He wrote the deeds of the divine Augustus. And uh, he wrote these words himself and then had them engraved on statues and public buildings all over the Roman Empire. And he had no shame. He wrote 35 paragraphs on, get this, why I love me. That's what he wanted everyone in his empire to know and everyone after how awesome he was, how much he was worthy of love. That's, that's just the way his world worked. That was the, the only currency that mattered. And it's pretty clear. That this culture of boasting and and big noting has seeped into the church in Corinth. Paul has been battling this group of leaders from most of the, the letter who are luring the church off course. They're pulling them away from their first love, their devotion to Jesus. He calls them false apostles. In chapter 11, verse 13, they are deceitful workmen disguised as Christ's apostles. And then Paul says his most damning statement, yet yeah, they work for Satan. Check this out in chapter 11, verse 15. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. If the servants of Satan disguise themselves as servants of Righteousness. So the, the battle lines are drawn. You've got Satan and his minions on one side. You've got Paul on the side of Jesus and the other, the Corinthian church, kind of in the middle, wondering which way they're going to go, which way they're going to turn. And, and Paul, right now at the end of his letter, he has one last play to win them back to Jesus. And it is a Hail Mary. He's going for it. His tactic is to beat them at their own game. You see, the Corinthians were dazzled by the, the big boasts from these false apostles, their ability to preach and their, their dramatic spiritual experiences. They had miraculous powers that they were boasting of. They, they, they boasted in their authentic Jewishness. That was the, the way of the world. That's how you won friends and, and influenced people. And so finally, Paul's like, fine, you want to play? You want to play the boasting game? Let's play the boasting game. And so he he works his way methodically through a series of boasts in chapter 11 and into chapter 12. And it looks like he's kind of matching the topics that they boasted on themselves. We, we heard them in our reading, didn't we? First, there was his Jewishness in 1122. They're Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew. They're offspring of Abraham. So am I. Then he goes on to serving Jesus their servants of Christ. Well then he says in verse 23, I'm a better one. Flex? I've suffered more than they have. He says, he lists his suffering five times. He's had 39 lashes from the Jews. 3 times he's been beaten with rods. Once, just once, he's been stoned three times he's shipwrecked. He's a danger from rivers, robbers, his own people from the, the Gentiles in cities, in wilderness, at sea, from false brothers. Basically, don't go on holiday with Paul. You're going to ask for trouble if you do. And that's not even the stuff that keeps him awake at night. No, that'll be the anxiety he feels for the churches. They want to boast about serving Jesus. Paul's got them covered, and then some. He's Building, building, building his defense that he is a legitimate, trustworthy messenger of Jesus. Listen to him. Come back to Jesus. And he's not finished. And here's where Paul flips it in 11 verse 30. He says this. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He, uh, he changes the rules In this last play, he's no longer boasting about his strengths or the the things that he's done well or his cracking CV. Uh, Now he's going to boast in the things that show his weakness. That's what the rest of this section, and they're all stories that show us how weak Paul is. And this is where we're going to camp out today, really in chapter 12, because it is remarkable. And just as radical for us as it was in Corinth. Because there's a a deep challenge that Paul lays on us with these boasts in his weakness. You see, the way of the world might be to boast and and brag and big note about our, our strengths and our successes, but that's not the way of Jesus. No, his is the way of weakness. For Paul, for the Corinthians, for any friend of Jesus, then and now. The path through life that we are called to follow is this way of weakness. And friends, if we can get our heads and our our hearts around this, this is the path to joy and contentment in our lives that we're not going to find anywhere else. This is worth tuning in for, isn't it? So let's take a closer look at this way of weakness for the rest of our time together. We're going to see two reasons why Paul can boast in this way. Here's the first one. Weakness amplifies the grace of God. Weakness amplifies the grace of God. Last week, I preached at a small, traditional Anglican church in Ararat. Anyone been to Ararat, Western Victoria? Beautiful place, just below the Grampians. you should visit. Uh, stay in Ballarat on the way back through with us. Uh, anyway, I had preached. It's near the end of the service. We'd, we've just had the Lord's Supper. We shared communion. We sat down. Uh, and then this row of men, they're all Solomon Islanders. They stand up, unannounced, in this small church, and they sing a cappella. This beautiful song, their response to... All that God has provided for them. It's a song of thanks. And it was heartfelt for them and spine-tingling for me. At the end of the service, the minister told me that they're all migrant workers. They're all farmhands. They're here without their families, wives, children still waiting back home. Hoping, waiting for visas to come and join these men in Australia. Now, they really don't have much. They're not paid very much. Their hope is Wafer thin. They're a long way from home by, by distance and, and culture and, and community. And as the way the world looks at them, these men are weak and unimpressive. And yet, they know how much God has given them. That's where that song springs from. Could it be that they have come to terms with their own weakness? So they know more deeply the riches of God's grace. Weakness amplifies The grace of God. Paul makes this point loud and clear for us in chapter 12. He he starts with a vision. He has, but he uses the the third person. He talks about a man he knows, and and really it is Paul. He shows us that it is through the vision. He's probably just too embarrassed to boast about this experience that was meant for him personally to, to encourage him to keep going, God knowing the severe hardships he was suffering for his name. So he says this in verse two, have a look with me, open your Bibles if you've got them in front of you. Chapter 12, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Now, we don't get a a full explanation of this vision, maybe it's out of body, maybe it's physical, Paul doesn't know, God knows, But, but either way, he was caught up to the third heaven. In his Jewish worldview, uh, they saw the first heaven as sort of the air that we breathe, the air around us. The second heaven was the sky and space above that. And then the third heaven beyond that, that was the realm that God was said to dwell in. So Paul is caught up to the very presence of God, where he hears and sees things that he cannot utter, he hasn't told anyone about this before, nowhere else in his writing at least, though that could be because God has told him not to, it could be because he would have to share something that no one else has experienced and so just wouldn't get it, but now he wants the Corinthians to know that he has had this incredible vision because of how it connects to his weakness, come with me to verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Why does he get this thorn in the flesh? Twice he tells us, beginning and end, to keep me from becoming conceited. So, so Paul's ego doesn't explode so he doesn't start boasting in his own strengths or, or that he alone deserves a vision of this greatness. It's so he stays humble, he's given a thorn in the flesh. And what is this thorn? I hear you ask, great question. Lots of people have lots of ideas on what it is. It's all speculation. Here's a few of the, the, the ideas that I read this week. It could be per pervision, Chronic illness, mental illness, malarial fever, epilepsy, could be a a physical defect like he's lost an eye or, or an ear. It could be a bad marriage. There is no other evidence that Paul is married, but some people write that this might be a bad marriage. Seems to me like they're projecting themselves onto Paul, but I don't know. The thing is, we don't know. We don't know what it is. My best guess, for what it's worth, is that it's some physical disfigurement that's both painful, and socially awkward. The reason that Paul is telling them about it here is because no sooner has he been lifted up to see this third heaven, these surpassingly great revelations, than he's brought back down to earth. He's pinned to the ground with this thorn in his flesh. Three times he pleads with the Lord to Take it away. Paul's not a masochist who's reveling in this pain. He wants it gone. He wants God to to deal with it. Let's pause just for a moment and think about Paul's theology there. He says, a thorn was given me. That turn of phrase is, is called the divine passive. Usually it means that God is the one behind the verb. God's the giver of this thorn. But then he says it's a, a messenger from Satan to harass me. Yeah, that is a, an incredible little insight into God's sovereignty over all of his creation, including his arch enemy, Satan. Satan's intention with this thorn in the flesh is to harass Paul it's to tear him down it's to destroy him to to discredit his ministry so that these Corinthians will be pulled off course and everyone else that's believed the gospel Paul has preached but that's not God's purpose no God wants him to not be conceited so Paul understands that God is the one behind this affliction Because he's the one that that Paul prays to to remove it. The the experience of this thorn in the flesh. Though a messenger from Satan is still within the bounds of God's control. God has the power to, to take it away. Now we see this thread woven through the Bible that evil can be used for good. That God can use even Satan's evil intentions for the good of his creation. Joseph, son of Jacob, way back in the book of Genesis, he knew this. His brothers sold him as a slave, and then they claimed that he'd been killed by wild animals. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, they meet years later, and Joseph says this to them. They've reconciled, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as we are today. God used evil for good. Job, in the Old Testament, he knew this. Satan comes to God and he argues that Job, who loves God, only loves God because his life is comfortable. He has all the stuff. If you take that away, he will curse you, God. Well, God gives Satan permission to harass Job, knowing that Job wouldn't turn his back on God. And, And so Satan would be shamed. And that's what happens. And then there's Jesus. Nowhere is it more clear in the whole Bible that God can use evil for good with the death of Jesus. He's put to death at the hands of wicked men and they will be responsible for the death of Jesus. It is despicable evil that would kill the only son of God. And yet God uses that. It's an act of God in love for us to reconcile us to himself, to forgive us our sins, to restore a relationship between us and himself. God can use evil for good. Church, let's be clear. Satan will still be at work. His purpose is still to knock God's people off course, to hinder the spread of God's kingdom. He will be devilishly at work to that end. And we need to be aware of that. The sure way we'll know that we're, we're being pulled off course is when we give up our devotion to Jesus and that be the first thing in our life when we're pursuing some other cause or we're consumed by some discomfort and so we curse God. But we can have confidence even in the midst of those hardships, God wins. In fact, he can use Satan's attacks for his glory and for our good to amplify his grace, Paul hears it with his own ears from the very source. Come with me to verse nine. But he said to me, "The Lord." So personal, the Lord speaking to his his much loved servant. He said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect." in weakness. These are some of the sweetest words in the Bible, aren't they? We might get a little thrown by the word sufficient there as if grace is somehow just enough, the the bare minimum to see us through life. But it's so much more than just enough, this grace of God. Fundamentally, it is the gift of God's presence to us. It's all of God's power, his love, his mercy, his strength at work in and through the person of Jesus for us, in and through me by his spirit. Grace is not an abstract thing that God gives us. It is It's the very presence of himself. And I wonder if our grasp on grace is just too small sometimes. It's by his grace that any of us exist and have our being. It's by his grace that we have breath in our lungs. It's by his grace that anyone is out in Melbourne this morning walking the streets, enjoying the sunshine of a new day. That is the grace of God. It is by his grace that we have salvation in Jesus, that we can have forgiveness of sin and, and enjoy a relationship with the maker of this world. It's, it's by grace that we have his spirit living in us, the very presence and power of God at work, transforming us to be more like Jesus. Grace is the, the presence of God that, that sustains us and strengthens us. So, listen, if you're not enduring some suffering at the moment, praise God. But store up these words, keep them close, because there will be a time when it comes. We will not get through life unscathed. And if you are suffering from a thorn in the flesh, this present moment, maybe it's illness, maybe it's a, a pain, maybe it's grief, maybe it's an accident, maybe it's a, an opposition or some oppression, maybe it's an unhealed trauma. Hear these sweet words for you personally. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. These are kind, tender, up. Building life giving words, aren't they? Uh, I wanted to know how this works. How do we actually know and experience God's grace? when we're at our weakest. I mean, it doesn't still make sense in my head as I was preparing this this week. And so I called a a wise friend, an older friend, a longtime pastor who's walked with many people through the valleys of the shadow of death, even unto death. And I said, how does this work? And he said, when when everything else is stripped away, when all our strength fails, when we are at our weakest and there is nothing else, that's when we know the sufficiency of His grace. Even when life is so bad that death is near, that's when we know the sufficiency of His grace. God doesn't leave us when we suffer. No, He leans in. So, said my friend, he, he will reassure us with His word. He'll remind us with timely prompts, of relevant passages that speak these words of grace to us, that he is with us. Romans eight, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death. He'll give us his perspective on the situation. It is a, a terrible thing to endure a season of weakness, but those seasons won't last forever. Being in paradise with him and in his presence, that will last forever. He'll use his people to love and care for us practically. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's a warm meal. Maybe it's just the gift of someone's presence being with us as we suffer. Not speaking, just their presence. We'll know that God is walking through weakness with us by his spirit. He will never leave us. So dear brother or sister, if that is the season you are in, please be encouraged. Don't give up. God's not giving up on you. It is in this experience of weakness that he amplifies our experience of his grace. I told you about my neighbor, Luke. I gave Luke a lift into town this week. Uh, His car had broken down, and so we got to talking about life and death, as we often do. This is a five-minute car ride, and at one point, he sort of, compared us both. He said, Ben, you have faith, and that's great for you. I have hope. I've got hope that things are going to be okay. That's what keeps me going. And I said, look, faith is hope. It's kind of the same thing. And in fact, we have hope in a person, in the presence and power of someone, a real person, Jesus. And this Jesus is with us when life is tough. He's using those experiences to deepen our faith in him. And we have hope that he'll see us through to the other side of pain and weakness because he is powerful, more powerful than anyone else you can meet. The second reason Paul can boast in the way of weakness is because weakness magnifies the power of Christ I was watching YouTube this week when a, an ad for a, a website builder popped up. The first line telling me, there's nothing more powerful than you. Uh, presumably only when you buy their software so you can build the website with them. Then then you are powerful in their minds. Uh, now look, the truth is, that's not my story. That's, those, those words aren't true for me. One of the gifts in my journey towards this church plant and, and now taking part in the planting of this church was seeing the power of Christ up in lights over and over again. I'll let you into a secret. I didn't think I was cut out for this. I went to Bible college. I had mates there who came into college and they were dead set laser focused on planting a church. That was their calling and they were they were awesome guys. They were good leaders. They were sharp theologically. They were type A personalities. They had church planter written all over them. They had, they had clear, confident vision. For me, I was kind of happy and content in a, a slower suburban Melbourne church, just quietly getting on with preaching the word and, and loving people and making sure a morning tea came out okay. Nothing wrong with that. I didn't think I had the, the oomph, the, the, the strength. To plant a church. It was Andrew Grills, our pastor down at City on a Hill, Geelong, who was the first one to say, Ben, I think you should plant a church in Ballarat. And I took about five seconds to think about it and politely wrote back and said, Andrew, I'm not a church planter. I have no connection to Ballarat. So you're going to have to find someone else. I still got the email. But you know, right from the beginning, Jesus has opened doors. He has shown up. He has provided exactly what I've needed just at the the right moment. Every time I've wobbled, he's answered prayers. He's brought one or two more people into the team. He's, He's provided just what we've needed just the right time. He's reminded me in his word that he's with us. He's used his people to give me a a nudge, sometimes a kick with encouragement and exhortation just to keep going, don't worry about next year or 10 years. Just do today. Just worry about today. I'm telling you 100% the truth, right? No false humility. I would not be here if the power of Jesus wasn't at work in and through this process. And so I tell you this because I want to leave a challenge with you as I head out today, what's your next big step of faith? What's going to make you a little uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Maybe it's stepping up to lead a gospel community. Maybe it's putting your hand up to lead at City Kids or at City Youth. Maybe you're ready to enroll in a subject at Ridley, do some Bible college and go deeper in your knowledge and love for Jesus. Prepare yourself for, for ministry, whatever that might look like. Maybe it is. That the Lord is calling you to plant a church. I'm convinced that our next church planters will be among us already. God is preparing us for that task. So what is it? What's your next big step of faith? If you're the kind of person that says, oh, no, I I couldn't do that. Well, then you're probably exactly the kind of person we're looking for. Because then you will be able to say with me and with Paul, the power of Christ is made perfect In weakness. Look with me. At the back end of verse 9. In chapter 12. Paul says. Therefore I will boast. All the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ. May rest upon me. Paul knows. That when we're feeling strong. Well we can kind of obscure. The power of Jesus. When good things happen, we'll be able to say, well, well, I did that. That was me with my gifts. I I started that ministry. I built that thing. I, I started that group. I converted those friends. I willed myself to be more like Jesus. But when we're weak, when we're at the end of ourselves and God comes through again, well, then there can be no doubt who's powerfully at work. John Piper puts it like this. We magnify God's worth the most when he becomes our only boast. Is that our boast? Can we honestly say that Jesus is our only boast? If you're anything like me, that does come hard. We're a city of self-sufficient solo artists, aren't we? We do it ourselves. It's hard to accept help from anyone else. Now, That's not true for all of us, but for many of us, we're not willing to share our vulnerabilities or our weakness because that makes, I guess, us look weak and, and weak is not the way of the world. Weak does not win friends and influence people. So, so I wonder, when was the last time you shared something of your weakness with someone else? When was the last time you, you were vulnerable, you trusted someone, and you shared something you're struggling with? Who can you do that with? If you can't see people around you in your life, I'd love you to come and share it with me and with the ministry team here. We would love to hear those weaknesses and share ours because then the power of Christ rests upon us. And here's why this is good for us. As we practice sharing our weaknesses, we're actually exercising the, the spiritual muscle of humility. And humility protects us from conceit and the the pride that pushes god away and says no i've got this i can do this it's rewiring my heart to magnify jesus and not me and look don't just stop with sharing that weakness when we we feel it when we really feel our weaknesses our, our vulnerabilities it is going to show up in our prayer life isn't it if we really, truly grasp how completely dependent on Jesus we are for his presence and his power, then it's going to drive us to our knees and bring all of our lives before his throne. As a church, when we grasp this, we would be maxing out the 300-person the limit on a Zoom call so we can pray in the engine room every week because there'd be so many of us who are praying, crying out, to Jesus to transform this city for his glory. We would have a a queue right up the stairs, right on the back of again for prayer every week. If we grasp our need for Jesus, we'd be ready to open up and, and seek help to pray and seek help in prayer to the one who has power to transform us to be more like him. We're not too proud to pray sitting on a hill, are we? The way of weakness is the way of Jesus because weakness amplifies the grace of God and magnifies the power of Christ. And this is the way into the the heart of Christianity because there at the heart of all that we believe stands Jesus, Jesus, a man who out of grace gave up the, the riches of heaven and became poor. For our sake. A a man born in a shed for animals, a human being with no fixed abode for much of his ministry. A man who went hungry and thirsty, who who grieved at death and wept. A man who was betrayed by a traitor and deserted by his friends, led like a lamb to the slaughter, and When he's nailed to the cross, that's where we see the weakness of Jesus most clearly when he's battered, pinned down with nails, gasping for breath. His flesh raw and blood streaming from his body. He is a picture of shame and failure and weakness. And yet that's where we see the power of Christ most magnified. Because that is where he won the victory over sin. That is where he has defeated death and Satan's last enemy. That's where he reconciled you and I and all things to God through his death at his weakest. He is strong. That's always been his way because God, says Paul earlier, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I'm going to invite the band up as we draw to a close. The way of the world is to boast and to brag and to hide any weakness we might have. The way of Jesus is to accept, to embrace these weaknesses so that his grace and his power might be magnified in our lives. So let me ask you this to finish, friends. Which way are you going? You can keep the mask on. And pretend that you've got it all figured out. And you've got it under control. And you don't need Jesus. And that will last for a little while. But you and I don't know. that. You, you and I both know that it can't last forever. Because there will come a, a moment. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's Next year, maybe it's 10 years down the track where the, the facade comes crumbling down. Weakness, failure, disappointment. They will show up in our lives eventually. And, and what then? Where do you go from there? Is that the way you want to go? Why not turn to the way of Jesus, the way of weakness to accept Those feelings, they're in our life. We all know they're there, except that they're there today. So you can know and feel the beauty in these true words. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Then I am strong. Church, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you chose the way of weakness. You chose that way so that we might be strong, that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have relationship, all because you chose the way of the cross. You endured sin and shame for our sake. We thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that those of us today who don't know the beauty of this truth, that we would turn to you. We would know the joy and contentment found only in your way. And God, I do pray for our brothers and sisters who are enduring a season of weakness and suffering. Now, Lord, would you be present with them? Would they know deeply in their hearts your grace your presence your power at work in and through them lord even today would you be reminding them that you're at work you have not left them lord you're present with them nearer than ever father would there be men and women throughout this room and with us online who would testify to your presence with them even in this season of weakness we pray it all for the glory of your name lord amen